All right. You know, I think we need to just pray right now. (laughs) Father, you are holy. You are worthy to be praised. You are our King, our Savior. And we love you, and it's only because you first loved us. It's only because you sent your Son to this earth to live a perfect, sinless life and to go to a cross, go to Calvary for us, that we would love you. You took, you, you poured out your wrath on your Son in our place when we deserved it. And he was buried, and you raised him from the dead, and now he sits at your right hand. And we can boldly come before your throne. What an amazing father. Lord, this morning we want you to be honored. We want, we want you to be high and lifted up. We want... Father, you to be glorified. Lord, I pray that these women would leave here this morning diligent to pursue the rest they have in you. Father, I need your help to speak your words. Thank you for your precious word that we have. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for each and every one of these women who are sitting here this morning so early on a Saturday morning because they want to grow. They want to see you. They want to fellowship with one another, encourage one another. What a precious gift our body has. Thank you so much, Lord. We commit this morning to you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. All right, so we're going to do what we do. Every morning in Wellspring, we are going to review the disciplines, so you can turn your notebooks over. Here, we, we're doing this again. I should have checked on this. Um, but we are here at Wellspring to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward, toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God, so that we live out the Gospel, thus Strengthening the church. It strengthens, it strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. That's why we're here this early every other Saturday morning. We want to understand and we want to unite our lives around these, these spiritual disciplines that are on the back of your notebook that we point you to. At Wellspring, we focus on three. The men have a long list of disciplines about, you know, with uh, being deacons and elders and um, and so on. But we focus on three, our hearts, our homes, and ministry. The first one, our heart. That's discipline one. We focus on our heart, where she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. See, God transformed us. He transformed our hearts, and he saved us, and now we're new creatures. We are united. We're united with Christ. 
That, and, and that's a work of God. That is a work of God. It's a one-time event. He united us with his son. And now this new heart is still in this mixed condition. We're gonna, we're gonna point, I'm going to point you to the diagram several times this morning. But remember the mixed condition we're in, the middle part of that diagram. There's still indwelling sin in our hearts, in our new hearts. The good news is sin's no longer our master. It's no longer our master, but there's still lingering effects, still a residue of sin. So praise God we're not who we once were, right? We once were dead. We were lost. We were hopeless. And we're not yet um, where there won't be a battle. That's heaven yet to come. But while we're in this mixed condition, we need to shepherd, we need to feed our new hearts, our new man in Christ. We need to feed that with, with God's word, with the truth from God's word, and with the hope that we have in the gospel. His word tells us who he is, who we are, what he's done, and how he wants us to respond, and how to live. And we can draw near to him. And because we're still in this mixed condition, we desperately need to get our hearts full of him in his word, um, equipped in order to fight that sin, you know, by his power, by his power walking in the spirit. Just, just the reminder and the acknowledgement of my heart's condition you know, that we're still in this battle, is helpful for me to know. It's helpful for me to remember. It's a great reminder of how much, you know, our hearts need to draw near to him and his word. It's, that's just, that helps me to remember, I need to be near my Savior with this heart. As I engage with others, you know, that are in the same condition or that, that need the hope, need to know the hope that we have in Christ. Our hearts need to be exposed to him and his word so that we so that we see the one and delight in the one and draw near to the one whom we've been united to, Jesus. And we do have to be purposeful. We have to be purposeful. We have to be disciplined. These are disciplines to grow in. We're not we're not perfect in them. No, no, no one is. No one. This is a lifelong pursuit. A lifelong pursuit. So, if you're discouraged this morning that you're not doing this diligently, you know, here you already have the discipline, first discipline, shepherding your heart before you, and you're already like, okay, I blew it with my reading plan already. I am, I'm behind, not caught up. Remember that reading plan is a tool to use, right, to help you be in the Word. Don't give up. Don't give up. Start today. Start today. He's given you what you need. He's given you what you need in him. And he wants you to draw near. So let us encourage you. Let, let's encourage one another in that. Let's encourage one another to keep going and persevere. And discipline, too, is about our household relationships. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God. And the gospel. This is about our relationships in our home um, with those who enter into our home. And as we shepherd our own hearts, our mixed condition hearts first, and with those hearts that are drawing near to Him, 
fighting sin, pursuing Christ, delighting in Him, we want to place a priority on our household relationships, a priority in making a gospel impact with those that we come into contact with, those who live and those who enter into our home, not not neglecting those relationships, but seeing them as an awesome opportunity to serve and to make an impact for the gospel there in your home. And the third discipline is ministry. Basically, we step into people's lives as we continue to grow in these disciplines. You know, we, we, we don't wait until we've mastered them, because do we ever? Do we ever master these disciplines? We don't. We never will. But as, as we're being faithful, as we're being faithful in our pursuit of them and growing in them, we minister to others in the church and outside of the church. That's discipline three, with a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling your ministry within your household. That's discipline two. You step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. All right. Those are your disciplines. So if you would please take out your outline. And it says, are you the heart? We're still in the hearts. And it says, are you passionate for salvation's rest? Are you passionate for salvation's rest? Um, I'm excited. I really am. This is a privilege to share what I continue to learn in this passage because this is the third year, actually, that I've had the privilege to soak here. And, um, you know, I, I still am growing and learning more as God reveals himself more to me through this. And I'm and I'm really thankful for Scott for his faithfulness to the word. He teaches this lesson in Build, and then he helps us work through it. Uh, but I'm so thankful that he has studied and, and taught this and given us the opportunity to learn as well. So if you haven't done so, please take out your Bibles and turn to Hebrews. Our, our passage this morning is going to be Hebrews 11 through 13. Um, you know, most of us are probably familiar with uh, verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12 is for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and it's piercing, right? We're familiar with that verse, most of us. But we don't want to miss the context of this very familiar verse. We don't want to just isolate this verse and miss where, right where God has placed it in Scripture. So even, even though there's a lot of emphasis on the word of God and our hearts in this, um, we have an opportunity to see discipline one fitting into a greater, a greater context, a greater end, and that salvation's rest in Jesus. But we need to start by reading all of chapter 3 and then into chapter 4 in order to help us understand the context. So, if you would, please... Uh, Follow along with me, starting in chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Can you hear me okay back there? Okay. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him. As Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now he's going to start to contrast 
Jesus with Moses. He says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we're in, if we hold fast our confidence and and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 7, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden what? Your heart. God's voice, your heart. As when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, that was the problem in the wilderness under Moses. So the writer tells them, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, again, Do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter that rest because of unbelief. Chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear, while a promise remains to enter his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, now he's going to start talking about God's creation, God's work in creation. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, verse 6, since it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as it's been said before. Today, if you hear his voice, here we go again. It was the same same thing. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's quoting Psalm 95, which was written by David, who was in the promised land. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest... He would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. He's saying that God's rest was to be an example for us. How we would rest from trying to work for salvation. We need to enter that rest where we would only believe and not try to work 
for salvation. And then our passage this morning, verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of what? The heart. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We're going to finish the rest later. So on your outline, um, I want to I want to I want to remind you of something before I get. We're going to stay in this first point for for quite a while. So I don't want you to start thinking like she's she's still on point one. Like this is yeah I'm still on point one probably until the break unless I see you guys kind of fidgeting and then maybe we'll break early. But just just hang in there. I don't want you to be distracted about that. But I'm wondering if anyone can relate to this. Have you ever been on a vacation? And you've had a really great time and, and um, you know, you're on your way home and you've been driving and you've been cooped up in the car and it's been a long, long drive. And, you know, it's been hours and it's late and you're really tired and you just want to get home. Maybe the kid's been screaming in the back, you know, if you have kids and you're like, we just need to get home. I'm so exhausted at this point. I'm so tired. And all I want to do is rest. <laughs> but, I, but, but I want to sleep in my own So we might, you know, drive a couple more hours instead of stopping. Because we want to sleep in our own bed. We want to rest. We want to get a certain kind of rest in our in our own bed. And and it wouldn't even cross my mind, and you know what, it especially wouldn't cross my husband's mind for sure, to just pull over, you know, and rest for a while. Like in that last half hour, right? Just hey, I'm just gonna let's just take a little nap here and you know, or just slow down and, and just coast home. You know, can you imagine the speed limit on the freeway is like 65 miles an hour and we just decide to go 25 and we're just going to coast the rest of the way home. Kids screaming, we're tired, let's just coast. No, that would be absolutely ridiculous. We, we would keep our foot on the gas. We would keep going, right? We, we, we would be diligent at that point, you know, because I'm passionate for one kind of rest. You know, the one I have in my bed. That's the kind of rest I'm passionate for. Um, My goal at that point is a certain kind of rest, one kind of rest. I'm focused on it, and I'm passionate, and and I'm diligent about that rest. And as we look at our passage this morning, there's a bit of a parallel in the Christian life, and we want we want the kind of attitude that's in Hebrews 4:11. So let's let's look at Hebrews 4:11. He says, "Therefore, let us be diligent to enter." That rest. Let us be. Let us be passionate to enter that rest. And, and the call here is just is to keep going. It's to keep accelerating spiritually speaking, not to coast. Coasting is very dangerous. And this passage is a warning. The Christian life is is not about coasting. We're called to be diligent. We're called to be passionate for one kind of rest, and it's salvation's rest. It's a really big kind of rest. It's the big kind of rest that he provides in Jesus. Salvation is big. Salvation isn't something that just happened. You know that one-time event? Remember your diagram? It's not. Salvation is just not that event. 
It certainly starts there, but it's much more than that. See, when I, we see the word salvation in Scripture, you know, or saved in Scripture, it can kind of be confusing. In the New Testament, salvation is spoken of a three, in three different ways. It's talked about in a past tense way, you know, God saved you. God saved you in the past. That's the event. You remember from your diagram. And then there's a future tense. God will save you from the wrath to come. And then there's a present tense. We are being saved. Scripture says we're being saved. This is the way God describes salvation. It's past, um, present, and future. As we look at uh, verse 3 in chapter 4, we see that, that he says, We who have believed enter that rest. That's past tense. We've believed and we've entered that rest. That's the one-time event. And verse 10 says, the one who has entered that his rest has himself also rested from all of his works. In other words, we've rested. This is very important. We've rested from our self-righteous attempts to make ourselves right before God. We've rested from that. And that's a past tense reality for believers. And there's this future entering of the fullness of of that rest. You can write down these scripture references if you'd like. Revelation 14, 13, where um, he talks about in heaven we will rest from all of our labors. In heaven we enter a rest we don't have right now. It's a rest to come when you die. A future tense that we won't ultimately be saved until heaven or until Christ returns. It's, it's an ultimate expression of that rest with him in heaven yet to come. But there's a rest that we get right now in Jesus Christ. And that's the rest we're going to talk about this morning. Verse 11 is a command. It's a command, and it's in the present tense. It says, be diligent to enter that rest. There's, there's a sense in Scripture that we are, as Christians, still being saved. It's a present tense reality. Christians have entered God's rest. If you're saved, you're saved. And we're to be diligent to enter that rest. That's Hebrews 4.11. And, and in the future, there will be a fullness of that rest in heaven. So you might be thinking, you know, okay, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that um, I have entered that rest if I believe? And are you saying that I have to, I'm to be diligent to enter that rest? And God's word says, yes, yes, that's what we're saying. That's what he's saying. Yes, both are true. That's how big salvation is. It's that big. So as we look at our passage this morning, you might want to start thinking about this question. You might even jot it down, you know, on the side and go back to it later. Um, But something to think about. Is there evidence in your life that you are diligent? Diligent to pursue Christ, to pursue salvation's rest in in him. Think about last week. Were you diligent to pursue Christ? We are told to pursue salvation's rest that God offers in Jesus Christ. Are we passionate for that? Is there evidence of zealousness in our lives for that, for him? You know, and it may be tempting to think, you know, or ask, you know, does this really matter? I mean, I'm saved. I'm saved. But we're going to see in our passage it matters. It's a big deal. Salvation is not just fire insurance. It certainly begins there with that one-time event, but it is so much bigger. And we're called to be diligent to pursue it, to participate. We're called to participate in it diligently. 
So this letter, this Hebrew letter in Hebrews, was written to Hebrew Christians. Hebrew Christians. And, you know, there were some in the church who were genuinely saved. And, you know, there were some who were not. You know, just like any church. Maybe even Grace Bible Church, right? But these Hebrew Christians, they were Jews, and, and they left Judaism to follow Jesus, Messiah. They heard, they heard of Jesus' words, so to speak, in Matthew 11:28, where he says, Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you spiritual rest. Rest for your souls. And that was a huge thing for Jesus to say. See, rest represented something very significant for the Jews because they knew there was only one who could bring rest. And for Jesus to say that he was the one, come to me and I will give you rest, that was huge. They heard, you don't have to work to earn any righteousness. It's all been done for you. They heard the gospel. Well, they heard that, and they followed that. And then their fellow countrymen, you know, the other Jews who did not believe in Jesus Messiah, well, they began to persecute these Hebrew Christians for leaving Judaism. Some of those Jews who had professed Christ were returning back. They were returning back to Judaism, and and they were starting to kind of um, live under the Mosaic Law again. These persecuted Hebrew Christians, they stopped. They stopped pursuing Christ. They stopped accelerating, and and they started to coast. They started to coast, spiritually speaking, and they didn't realize just how dangerous this was. And the writer of Hebrews is warning them because, well, this kind of thing has happened before. Prior to the coming of Christ, where God's people were tempted to not pursue God's great salvation with passion and zeal and diligence. This happened over and over again. Uh, throughout redemptive history. And the writer of Hebrews, he's, he's warning them, saying, you know, this, this, this must not happen to you. That, that was the warning he was giving them. It must not happen to you. And ladies, this is a warning for us too. It's a serious warning that we, that we might be content to just coast instead of being passionate for God's great salvation rest in Christ. Look, Things are going to come into our lives. And they'll tempt us to stop being diligent, to coast. Persecution, that's what was happening with these Hebrew Christians. But persecution may come into our life. Suffering, life circumstances, distractions. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, whoa, what happened? I'm coasting. What happened? And we need to realize just how dangerous this is. Is We can get distracted and we can start to coast. My husband does this a lot when he's driving. Now, I talked to him about this and I asked him if I could share this and he thought it was hilarious to share it. So it's okay. But um, he, when he drives, sometimes he's really observant and he starts looking off at the new building that's coming. Hey, I didn't see that new building. That's, that's over there, you know? And, and then we start hearing those little bumps, bump, 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 you know? <laughs> it's like a warning, like, get back in your lane, right? And, and so we all, like the kids and I, we tease him about all the time, and, you know, but he, he gets a little bit distracted and, and, uh, when he's driving. And then, then what happens is I look over and I'm like, 
honey, as his helpmate, I do this. <laughs> I don't recommend it because it's not always with the right motive. But sometimes he appreciates it. Like, did you know you're going 55 and the speed limit's 65? Oh, he didn't know because he's looking off over. Or, you know, we're in the automotive business, so he's looking at cars, you know, and he's like, that car needs a new exhaust, that car needs, you know. So, you know, he just gets distracted and he just lets up off of the gas. And, you know, the same thing can happen to me. I can start to let off the gas too. But it's not because I'm very observant about what's going on around me. I'm just, I get tired. And I'm driving. And I'm not being purposeful. I zone out. I miss exits all the time. You can ask my friends. But I don't do that well, stay in my lane sometimes. Because I'm just not paying attention. And, I, and I've drifted below the speed limit. And really, that's not an outside distraction. That's a distraction in me. So there are external things. External things. Um, and there are things within us <laughs> that tempt us to coast. This is a quote from Sarah. We're just coasters. We're just coasters. We started laughing. We thought it was really funny. And then we started going on with more analogies that I'm not going to share. <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, but my heart has a high t- hard time getting a grasp of just how badly I need, you know, to keep my eyes fixed on Christ and pursue Him. I can be content. I can even get content in my coasting for a while. And it doesn't always have to do with my circumst- circumstances that are around me. And this is just really, you know, it's really dangerous. So this is a warning for us to keep going, to keep going and pursue and to accelerate toward and be passionate for God's salvation's rest in Christ. There's never a time in the Christian life where where we are not to be passionate for that, where we're not to be accelerating and to be diligent ever. So as we look at our passage this morning, Hebrews 4, 11-13, we have three passions of the Christ, Christian who diligently shepherds her heart into salvation's rest. Yeah, that was just the intro. <laughs> We have three passions, all right? And the first one is this. Actually, you have four in your outline, and the fourth one is is there um, taken from the greater context of Hebrews, like a bonus one. Um, so, the, so these passions um, are in terms of questions for you on your outline. And the first one is this. Are you passionate to spend yourself? Are you passionate to spend yourself? To enter the rest that comes from God. As, as we look at Hebrews 4.11, right away we see that we have a command. It says, let us be diligent. This, this is what is meant by spending yourself. Be diligent. And the command means that this is not something that just happens. You know, when we become a believer, or something that we do accidentally. It's intentional. It's not something reflexive. You know, like when the doctor hits your knee and it just bounces up. That would be reflexive. That's not what this is. No, this is an action where we must be very intentional, purposeful. In other words, we're to be zealous. We're to be eager. We're to be diligent. We're to take pains to achieve. That's really what it means. To be thoughtful about something. And what is it? What comes next? Let's look at it. It says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Not just any rest. 
It's a rest he's already mentioned. So before we move on, there are three things that tell us we need to, to look back to help us understand this. That's why we read you know, all of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. First reason is the word therefore at the beginning of verse 11. You know, we always ask when we see that word, therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, right. What's the therefore, therefore? And then second is that that rest. That rest. We have to understand what that rest is. And then the command. There's a sense of urgency in the command to be diligent, right? So the rest that the writer of Hebrews has been talking about in chapters 3 and 4 is this very big rest. It's a big spiritual rest that's in Christ. And this is what God's always had in mind for his people all throughout redemptive history. See, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, even when he delivered his people out of Egypt and they were, and they were in the wilderness, he gave them smaller cycles of rest to point them to and help them understand the more important, bigger spiritual rest that salvation was and is. It is a very gracious and kind thing for him to do. It's kind of like a dad, you know, when um, who eventually wants his, he wants his son to ride a big adult bike, but he doesn't give him an adult bike when he's three years old, right? He gives him a little um, um, big wheel. You know, and then he gives them a tricycle. And then maybe he gives them a bigger bike with training wheels on it. And that's all to prepare him. That's all to train him, to point him to the ultimate goal, the big bike. And that's kind of, that's kind of a picture of what God was doing in the past. See, all these smaller rests that God gave, they were, they were never to replace or stand in place of the big rest. Like, like the trike, that was never the goal. These smaller rests were never the end or the goal either. See, God gave cycles of rest. The rest that I'm talking about are these cycles of rest that he gave to Israel. He gave um, a weekly Sabbath rest. It was a rest for a day. Every seven days, a rest came around. So every week, there was a reminder that there is rest. And then, and then every seventh year, there was a land Sabbath, a land rest um, and they were to give the land a rest for a whole year. So it came around every seven years. So there was every seven days, then every seven years. And then there was this really big rest. Every 50th year, there was a rest for the nation. Anybody know what that was called? Yeah, the year of Jubilee, where if they had slaves or had purchased land, it all went back to the Hebrews. And, and then the slaves, you know, if they wanted to go free, they could go free. So, so maybe in your lifetime, you, you know, that would only come around once. So in your lifetime, you know, or, you know, only come around once. So there was um, not, not every seven years and, and then not every, once a week, but, but just once, every 50 years. And these rests for Israel, they were given at Mount Sinai. This is very important to understand. These rests were given um, at Mount Sinai in the wilderness prior to entering the promised land. And then the promised land was another kind of rest for Israel. That was to make them think about the greater rest that God had always intended for them in himself. Now let's look and see what he says in Hebrews 4, 6 through 8. He says, Therefore... Since it remains for some to enter it, that rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he just has been said before, today if you hear his voice, 
do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, that's in the promised land, rest into the promised land. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there's another day. Here the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, and that's written by David. Now remember, what was David in Israel's history? He was their king, right? In the wilderness? No, he was their king in the promised land. They're already in the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews is quoting David from Psalm 95, and he says, again, this happened. David's saying, today in the promised land, Israel, make sure you don't harden your hearts if you hear his voice. So you see, Psalm 95, it was written long after all those smaller cycles of rest were given in the wilderness, and, and it was written long after Joshua had led Israel into the rest in the promised land. So it's being missed. It's just continually being missed. It was being missed in the wilderness. And now in David's day, seeing his generation doing the same thing in the promised land. And so, so here's what you need to understand. The writer of Hebrews now in the New Testament is establishing a pattern. His readers, these Hebrew Christians, the persecuted church, are now in danger of what? The very same thing. Missing salvation's rest. Missing the rest that is in Christ. God's big salvation rest that he offers, it's, it's continually in danger of being missed. And verse 9 says, So there remains a Sabbath, Sabbath rest for the people of God. So even though there are all these smaller kinds of rests for the people, verse 10 says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. He's saying, The one who has that Sabbath rest of God, that salvation's rest, is the one who rests from working to earn God's favor. Resting from trying to to do your own good works to establish your own self-righteousness. We don't do that. We give up on that. That made them weary and heavy laden, remember? And Jesus said, 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 come to me. Come to me when you're like that. So there's a rest that is marked by the abandonment of works in an effort to establish your own self-righteousness before God. We rest in Christ's righteousness alone. Verse 11 says, Be diligent to enter that rest. Be diligent to enter that rest. So the writer of Hebrews, now in his day, He's seeing, he's seeing history repeat itself. His readers, these Hebrews, Hebrew Christians, the, the persecuted church are in danger of missing the greater rest in Christ, especially if they're tempted to go back to Judaism, which is a religion of trying to earn or establish your own self-righteousness through works. That's the rest that's the mind of the Hebrews leader. And the danger for Christians at any time is the same. It's the very same thing. It's the very same thing may look different for us, but it's the very same thing. God's plan in his great salvation's rest requires believers to spend themselves or to be diligent. That's, how, that's just how he set salvation up to be. It's his plan. It's his plan for salvation to run, not to earn to get salvation. But once you are in it, you run diligently. Labor equals rest. (laughs) We're called to be diligent, to be thoughtful, 
and it doesn't happen accidentally or reflexively. So what would it mean? What would it mean when we say spend yourself? What does that look like? Well, here are two things, two things. Um, and, and I know your notes are kind of, well, you just have a blank page. But I encourage you to write them down. There's going to be two points. What would it look like to spend yourself? And, you know, if you're like me, you're like, cool, this is awesome. I've got my pen. I've got my paper, you know, and um, I'm ready to make a list of things I need to do. Tell me what I need to do. Just give me the list, and I'm ready to go spend myself. But here's the first thing. Spend yourself to know. Spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners. That's you and that's me. Spend yourself to know the gospel. You spend yourself to know that first. This isn't about spending yourself to do anything to get saved or to or to earn salvation, you know, to stay saved, but spend yourself to know what Christ accomplished on the cross for guilty sinners. Look at this. Looking back, starting, you can turn to Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 1, verse 3. And, you know, as we look at this, I know it's early in the morning, and I know that you're tired and, and all of that, but this is... This is so important to spend yourself to know. So let these truths penetrate your heart. We're we're to spend ourselves to know these things. That he's the radiance of his glory. Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made propitiation for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what Jesus did, and it's finished. It's finished. That's what he did. For salvation's rest, we need to spend ourselves to know gospel realities and gospel truths and declarations. I want to know this more. I want to know him more, don't you? Let's look at at chapter 2. Look at verse 9. But we do see him who has made... For a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He tasted death for us. He tasted death for you. Spend yourself to know that. Labor to make that truth. Rule over the Im- and impact your heart. To impact fear. Verse 14 of the same chapter says that through his death, he rendered powerless the devil. And he rendered powerless the fear of death. There's no fear in death. We could spend ourselves and remind ourselves of those things to know gospel realities. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore he, may, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what Jesus did for us. He had to be made he had to be made like us in all things to make propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means um, satisfaction, but it's not just satisfaction. You could add to that exhaustion. God's wrath, it's it's not just satisfied though it is, but it was satisfied in that it was completely exhausted. Remember, you know, Scott reminds us of this. There's nothing left in the cup. 
There's nothing left. Ladies, let that reality penetrate your heart. Every time you sin, think about the last time you sin. It doesn't even cross God's mind to go grab his cup of wrath. You know, because you sinned, if he looked in it, it's empty. There's nothing left. Nothing left to pour out. Because it's empty. It's exhausted. He made propitiation. He satisfied God's wrath. He exhausted it. For salvation's rest, spend yourself to know these kinds of gospel truths. We're forgetful people. I'm so forgetful. We need to, to remind one another of these things. That's, that's like discipline two and three. I need to be reminded. And this is what preaching or shepherding your heart with the gospel is. This is, how, this is what we do. And secondly, spend yourself. That's the second point you can write down. Spend yourself in entrusting your life. Spend yourself in entrusting your life to Christ and his work on the cross. You know, it's not enough to just know it. We must entrust our lives to it, to believe these things. We must know them and meditate on them, expose our hearts to them so we can trust and believe and be satisfied in them, in him. Biblical salvation is about us diligently entrusting ourselves to gospel truths, to gospel realities. And hearing all of this diligence for entering salvation's rest, please listen very carefully. This is not a diligence that comes from uncertainty. You know, about whether or not God's wrath has been satisfied for you. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's not it at all. Actually, it's just the opposite. This diligence is a diligence that flows from, it overflows from, the certainty That God's wrath has been propitiated, has been satisfied, has been exhausted by Christ for you. For those who are born again, for Christians. If you're a believer, you can be absolutely certain of that. And we're called to be diligent in that certainty. From that certainty about what Christ has accomplished. You know, have any of you ever got up early to watch the sunrise? Anyone? Okay. Anybody go? Have you? Okay, Lori, did you get up because you weren't sure that the sun was going to come up? No, not at all. You, you got up to go see it because you were certain. You, you, you were certain and you wanted to glorify God in it, right? It's that. It's a certainty. She didn't get up and go, okay, I'm not sure if the sun's going to come up, so I'm going to go look. No. Yes, it is. So, it is actually God's intention that your diligence, your spending yourself, is from a confident trust that what he said he did, he did. He did. And so we can run out of that certainty. We, we spend ourselves out of that certainty, not out of uncertainty. Now let me ask you something. What are we at times tempted to do with something that we're certain of or that we're sure Kind of in our flesh, might get a little lazy, right? 
start taking our foot off the gas, you know, start to coast about things that are certain, thinking like, well, you know, I do have my fire insurance. And he said he's going to finish the work that he started. He said he's going to finish that, so I think I'm going to go on cruise control for a little while and just coast. You know? And that's just a very small view of salvation. And yet, isn't this a temptation for us? You know, God didn't set salvation up to be that way. It's because of the certainty we act on his promises. It's because of the certainty we participate. We participate. We run with diligence and passion. And that's how God designed salvation to be. It's his plan. It's just his plan, and it's for his glory. So in being diligent, spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished on the cross for us, for guilty sinners, and spend yourself in entrusting your life to We all know Philippians 1.6, right? Philippians 1.6 says, I'm not very confident in this. No, that's not what it says. It says, I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says he's confident in this very thing. And then yet in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, what are we called to do? Work out your salvation. Not work for, work out with fear and trembling. For it, it is, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you hear that? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, or because God is at work in you. He created good works for us to walk in them. See, remember we're in this mixed condition. And there are these three P words that might really, kind of words that begin with P, that might really be helpful in understanding this working it out. There's penalty, you might write, penalty, power, and presence. See, we've been freed from the penalty of sin. We've been freed from the power of sin. But we haven't been freed from the presence of sin. We still have the presence of sin in our mixed condition. That's that middle part of the diagram. So working out your salvation, we are still battling the presence, that residue of sin. We still must fight the presence of sin. And we fight it with and from the gospel. From, you know, with our new hearts in their mixed conditions with a love for Christ. So here's the summary up to this point. There's nothing accidental about us spending ourselves. We need to be intentional. You know, when's the last time you accidentally ran a mile? I ran this morning. I had these bad feet and I was running because I was late. And my husband's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh no, there just went that analogy. Of, you know, but I'm like, no, I was being intentional. <laughs> I was like running because I was late. So, anyway, it takes intentionality. Um, and we're to be thoughtful. We're to be intentional in our zeal to enter the great salvation's rest that's achieved for us by Christ. So, spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners and spend yourself in entrusting your life to them. And the question, the question I have for you this morning is are you passionate for that? Is this your passion? Hebrews 11.4 says, Be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. So that no one will fall. Do you see that? No one. Not just so that you won't fall, but so no one will fall. And how do they fall? See the rest of the verse there? It says, Through following the same example of what? Disobedience. We must be concerned about our how devastating disobedience is. Unchecked disobedience. Is this our passion? You know, to be concerned about disobedience and even to be, to be passionate to protect others, you know, from falling. 
You know, our disobedience has an impact on others. They might, they might fall if we give them the example of disobedience and not being diligent to enter his rest. Are we passionate about that? And then look back at chapter 3, verse 18. And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? I'm so thankful for this warning. This passage is a great reminder. We need to be concerned about our, our disobedience. And at times, you know, I'm not. I just, I just don't get as concerned as I need to be. You know, I could even make light of it sometimes. You know, make light of my sin. I know, I know that I'm well aware of the disobedience in others. I can point that out pretty quickly, you know, more than I can my own. And this is a sobering warning. So what's the answer? Preach the gospel to your disobedience. Preach the gospel to your disobedience. Romans 6, verses 6 and 7 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That's what we preach to our disobedient hearts. By grace you've been united with Christ crucified and Christ raised with the dead. Why? So that we might powerfully be freed from the tyranny of sin. That's a supernatural power. So remember, when, when, when you're disobedient, you know, and when sin is just like weighing you down, it's heavy, be diligent to remind yourself of gospel truths, of, of declarations, of, of the realities in the gospel, because the power to obey comes only from being motivated by the completed work of Jesus for you, for us. And if you're struggling with this, um, Scott... And Smed did a series a couple of years ago, and I think it's online. On it's a it's a series on Romans six about um, about this very thing. I, it's long, but I encourage you to just go back and listen to those. Um, so helpful for me in preaching the gospel to my sin. So this is a warning, and this is an encouragement to be diligent. Spend yourself to enter the rest that God has for us, and that God will yet provide for us in His Son and Jesus. So. We're to be diligent, right? To spend ourselves, to enter the rest that God has for us and is for us, and that He's to provide for us in His Son. And talking about all of this zealousness, we had a really great question. So, just to clear it up, this zealousness is a zealousness that is about being diligent to entrust our lives to Christ. To be faithful in that. To be faithful in spending ourselves in that. In knowing him. And in all this talk about zealousness, we could, it could be kind of confusing. Like, again, still, like, that feels so exhausting. And what if, you know, if I've been a believer for 30 years, and how am I to keep maintain this, you know, keep up zealousness, right? And Sarah had a good analogy. It's kind of like an Olympic athlete. You know, they're, they're an Olympic athlete, and every day they may not feel like getting up and training, but, they, but, they're, but they're passionate for it, they're zealous, zealous for it, um, and they do it, um, and they train. Or like a faithful, a fa- you know, an older faithful servant. You may not see them going, <laughs> right? All this, like, you know, exude, exuberant energy that looks like zealousness. But you see a zealousness in the faithfulness that they have in pursuing Christ every day. That's the, isn't that the zealousness that we want? We want to we be faithful. 
all women pursuing Christ into pursuing salvation's rest in Christ that way. And if you want to get excited about it, that's awesome too. But it may, it, it's not an emotion. The zealousness is not an emotion. It can, it can, it can include emotion. You know, emotion, I mean, those come and go. But this is not an emotional zealousness. I hope that, I hope that makes some sense. All right. So we're going to move on to the second question, your outline. So yes, that was all the first questions. And now question number two is on the back, on the back of your sheet. And it's this. Are you passionate to search yourself, to search yourself with the word of God? Are you passionate to search yourself? Let's look at that. Let's look at Hebrews 4.12. And now, we know many are familiar with this verse. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And many of us probably even memorized that. You know, but we haven't paid, I, I hadn't paid much attention to um, verse 11, right before it. Let's look at that. Again, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. For is explanatory. It's the explanation given for why the reader needs to be diligent. And why? Why does it say we need to be diligent? Because of God's word. We could read it like this. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience because the word of God's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's so important to understand what God's word is doing, what it's doing with our hearts, with our inner man. This is what discipline one's all about. And the writer of Hebrews has already been making this very important point about the heart. He's already pointed out the relationship between God's word, his divine word, and our hearts. All throughout chapter 3 and 4. Remember Hebrews 3, um, 7, when he's quoting Psalm 95 today. If you hear his voice, if you hear God's word, do not harden your heart. Your heart. So he's saying there's a relationship between God's word and our hearts. Verse 8 says, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10 says, they always go astray with their hearts. Verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an unbelieving what? Heart. See how he's already been addressing the heart? Verse 15 repeats again Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So there's this emphasis on the word and an emphasis on the heart. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 7, where he repeats it again. He he continues to repeat it. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. God's intended that his words would intersect with our hearts. And the problem that he's addressing here is that our our tendency is to make our hearts unreceptive to God's word. That's the warning. Because we can be prone to make them hard to his word. And here in verse 12, he's telling us how effective the word of God is with our hearts. Get it again. He says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's piercing as far as division of soul and spirit. And he goes on. 
So the call here in this entire section of scripture is this. If, if this is what God's word's doing, all of that in verse 12, if God's word is it, it's searching us, that's what it's doing. And if it's searching us, if it's searching our inner, inner man, then the wisest thing for us to do is to participate. To participate with God's word. To cooperate with God's word. And we do that by, by giving it the platform to be most effective as it searches. Search yourself, but, but we don't do it apart from God's word. Okay, with God's word. We search ourselves with God's word. See yourself as the word of God sees you. Don't fight his word, but cooperate and participate. Humble yourself before his word, under his word. This is really interesting. Okay, in the Greek, if you want to give a word in your sentence, emphasis, you know, make a big impact, you put it at the front of the sentence. And I know I may have just sounded smarter than I really am, but that's just what I'm told. I don't know Greek, <laughs> but that's what I'm told. I, I barely know English. Um, and so, let's look at what the very first word Describing the word of God is in verse 12. It says it's what? Living. It's living. It would be translated in Greek like this. For living is the word of God. It's emphasized. God's word is living like God is living. Our living God has a living word. It's alive. God's word's alive and, and it's active to penetrate our hearts and to search our inner man. It lives to discern us. Who we are at the deepest level. At the deepest level. And you know, something can be alive, you know, but not really active. Like like a bear when he's hibernating. He's alive, but he's hibernating. You know, or it could be alive but in a coma. But not God's word. It's living. God's word is it's energetically alive. That's what it means. Energetically alive for, it, for his own intentions and purposes in our hearts. And, and then what the author says next after living is very important. What does it say? The word of God is living and it's active and it's really soft and cuddly like a little teddy bear. No, that's not what it says at all. It's not what it says. Okay, so Scott uses this illustration in build and it's your third year in Wellspring. I'm sorry, but we cannot improve on some of these illustrations. We try to come up with things, and they're just not as good. So you get it again. You get it again. But he talks about being at a football game, you know, or like at a graduation, and somebody takes out a beach ball, and they blow it up, you know, and, and, and then they start to um, bat it around. It's like this soft ball. Um, but they bat it around, you know, and, and it looks like it's alive. The ball's like going everywhere. It looks like it's alive. It goes from person to person, and they, when they bat it, it flies, you know, all over the place. Have you seen that? You know? So it goes up in the air, and you go bat, and it goes flying over in that direction. Then another person goes bat, and it goes flying in another direction, right? It's going really flat, fast. It looks like it's alive. It's flying all over the place. And it's active. But it's at the mercy of every will that it comes into contact with. Right? It's at their mercy. And you know, that's the way a lot of people view his word today, sadly. You know, how how, how some do church or Bible study. It's a postmodern view. They all get together. 
you know, and they just kind of bat around God's word. Here's what it means to me. Bat. Well, here's what it means to me. Bat. Bat it in another direction. Here's what it means to me. Completely different direction. Just hit it back and forth to one another, and it's as if it's dependent on on what our will says, what their will says. You know, I'm just going to bat it this way. And it may appear to be active. And you know, you would never do that with something that's living and something that's active and something that's sharper than any two-edged sword. Would you do that? No. It doesn't say it's just a sharp sword. It says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Now imagine if someone in the crowd, you know, takes out a two-fit, double-edged, long sword and throws that up in the air. Right? How quickly would we uh, bat that around? Not so much, right? All of those individual wills, they don't really feel so inclined, so superior with that sword spinning, coming down. I mean, I don't want to take a swing at that. God's word is living, and it's active, and it's, it's just not a sharp sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, there was this, this handheld sword that the Roman soldiers would use in hand-to-hand combat, and it was the sharpest weapon in his arsenal, and, and it would do serious damage. And this is kind of cool. It, it, its grip it would be um, well-worn, and it would be shaped just for um, the right hand, for the not a bunch of hands, but just that one hand, the, the soldier's hand. It was meant for his hand alone, to be directed by his will alone. And God's word is, is like that. It's subject to his will. God's word is subject to his will, not my will, his will. So when we come into the presence of God's word, we humble ourselves. And we carefully place ourselves under his word, under the sharpest of all instruments. And we handle it very, very carefully because God's guiding his sharp and active word perfectly. He's guiding it to to our inner being and to our inner man. So we should be very, very careful, very humble, very gentle, because God's word is just not something that we bat around and we throw around. And when we all get together, you know, maybe as we encourage one another or counsel one another, you know, or, or even maybe at times admonish one another, we should be very careful. Be very careful not to bat it around. But to remember that it's sharp. And I need to handle it carefully. Um, I need to hand it to you carefully. Humbly. Gently. We handle it to one another. We hand it to one another that way. And the description keeps on building. God's word is sharp in order to penetrate deeply and accurately. And it's piercing. It says... It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both uh, joints and marrow. And basically, soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it's kind of an accumulation of terms expressing the inward part of you, inward part of man. What I can't see physically with my own eyes, like my joints and my marrow, you know, what is hidden from my side and my inward being, it's not hidden from God at all. It's not hidden from God's word. It's seen. His, his word has no trouble penetrating to my inner man. That's, that's what it does. And, and what does it do once it gets there? It says it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
That word judge is a legal term. It means that it is the great critic of our heart, of the inner man. The word of God does not open us up at the heart level to the place where we can't even see, you know, to the inner man and, and lay us bare and then say, all right, you know, I've laid you bare, so what do you think? What do you think? You know, go ahead, give your opinion. You know, or go get a second opinion. No. No, his word judges. His word discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We are opened up so that it can give its opinion. It's, it can give its criticism and it can give its rebu- rebuke. And it opens us up, us up so that it can give us its approval. You know, where we've become conformed to the image of Christ, it can give its approval. That's encouraging, right? Maybe you can relate to this. I have trouble discerning my own heart. My motives, my thoughts, my intentions, what's pure in my thoughts and in my intentions, what's sinful. You know, if I'm left to my own assessment, you know, I usually have no trouble, you know, thinking I can discern everyone else's motives, everyone else's heart. But our motives, our thoughts, and our intentions, they're, they're tangled up. They're so intertwined and they're twisted together in our hearts. There's right thinking, there's sinful thinking, you know, and just tangled within my heart. And I struggle to pull it all apart and discern at times, left to myself. I can't search myself effectively to see what's going on in my inner man. You know, I, I, I'll give myself the benefit of the doubt. Rationalize. Right? That's what I do. And, you know, I'm so thankful that I can even recognize that. Because that's a much better place than I was before. It's a much better place than we were before. Right? Because we're in a new condition. We're in a new condition. Though mixed, there's still that residue of sin. But I'm not who I once was. We're not who we once were. And it's nothing compared to what we'll be, right? So as we battle, as we participate, we can be encouraged that we are not who we once were. Okay, so God's word enables us to search and see our own hearts. This is why our lives can't be lived far from it. Because my view of myself, our view of ourselves will be, it will be skewed. If I have God's word in my heart and in my mind, I can see myself as, as God's word sees me. I can search myself as God's word searches me. And that's what we need. That's what we need. So do you see how important this is? See how important it is? It's very wise for us to participate with God's word in its searching. Position yourself. Participate in its searching. Long for it. Long for it. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And you know, it's so foolish. It's really foolish for us to think that we can bluff or, you know, even manipulate or rationalize anything before God. You know, or think that I can keep secrets from God. You know, that we can keep our thoughts and our motives kind of hidden from him to myself. You know, it's impossible. He sees everything. So when we say shepherd your heart to the word of God, what we mean is to position your heart before God and his word. So that his word gives you an accurate view, an accurate perspective of where your heart really is. That's the best place to be. And again, all of this is given in verse 12 as an explanation as to why we should be diligent. To spend ourselves to enter salvation's rest because God's word is searching us. His word's always functioned this way. His word was doing that with the people back in the wilderness when he was speaking through his voice. When you hear my voice, 
Don't harden your hearts. Participate with my voice. That's what he's saying. So don't fight it. Don't harden your hearts to God's word. Instead, participate. Invite it. Invite it. Plead with God. Plead with him for an attitude that wants to participate. Lord, please keep me humble. Keep me from hardening my heart. Plead for a careful, humble, tender heart and attitude. And you know what? If you do nothing, if you coast and do nothing, you can... You can really expect nothing. Yeah. You can expect that your inner man and your heart, even in its mixed condition, will not be receptive to his word. So cooperate, participate, and see yourself as the word of God sees you. Are you passionate for that? To search yourself with the word of God? Number three. Are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the word? Are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the word? Verse 12 describes the word of God and what it does and sees. Remember, it's living active, sharper than into a sword. It's piercing. That's what the word of God does and sees. And now verse 13 describes what the God of the word sees, what, it, what, he, what God sees. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. See, if you search yourself with God's word and it's revealed to you that maybe you are hiding, maybe you've got that shield up or you're even wearing a mask, you know, you've you've got a disguise over your heart, there's really no use in pretending that God doesn't see through that. He sees. See, because we're not hidden. We're not hidden from his sight. No creature is hidden from his sight. We are open. We're laid bare. We're naked before God. He's fully aware of everything in us, everything that we are at the heart level. It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it, to think in in those terms? I don't know about you, but it makes me feel uncomfortable, that laid bare, naked before God. But it's a good description of how we are. Masking or disguising or covering up what we are before God, it just doesn't work. It's about as effective as as a little child closing her eyes, covering her face. And she thinks she can't be seen, you know, like playing peekaboo. Where's, you know, my little granddaughter, where's Daisley? Here I am, you know, thinking that I don't know where she's at, right? Thinking we can hide whatever's going on inside of us from God is, is kind of silly. It's about as foolish as that. And this idea of being laid bare to the eyes of him, it, it's not completely clear um, what laid bare means. It's parallel to the word, though, naked or or open or laid bare, but some some think it's when they um, lifted up the head of the sacrificial animal to slit its throat, it was laid bare. Some think it was a wrestling move um, that they used in the Olympic or the gladiator games where they would wrestle, and they wrestled naked, and, and they would get the opponent down into a hold, and when the neck was exposed, he was laid bare. He was vulnerable. There was nothing he could do but give up, to submit. You're, you're, you're submissive. You're not in control. That's the point. Most likely it's a lifting up of the chin or lifting up of the face. Lifting it up to have full face-to-face contact, to eye-to-eye contact with God. I used to do this with my kids, and I see um, some of you moms doing this where you take their little face and you lift it up, you know, so they'll look at you. you know, and, and sometimes, you know, they look up. And, and you want to have eye-to-eye contact, and their faces are level, but their eyes are like over here, you know, and you're say, you say, look at me. I want to see your eyes. Look at me, right? Why do we do that? 
because we want our child to know, I see what you're doing. I see. I want your full attention. We need to remember God sees us. He's fully aware of everything in us at the heart level. It's good. It's just good to remember that. We need our eyes lifted up and be reminded. He sees me. He sees through everything. So if God already right now sees us as we truly are, then what should we do? What should we do? Surrender. Surrender. We need to surrender. Don't fight it. He's not going to crush you. He already crushed his son for you. He's our father. If he already sees us open, laid bare before him, vulnerable before him, don't fight it. Don't fight it. We can drop any disguise. We can surrender and submit to him and communicate with God. God, I know you see me. I know you see me for who I truly am. And I'm really glad. I need to remember this. You see me as as my father. And this is so helpful in removing any mask or disguise, or as C.J. Mahaney puts it, in any carefully edited version of myself. We may be wearing, or may be tempted to wear, you know, disguises and masks and shields before others, you know, with our families even and our friends and small group. You know, we don't have to have shields up. We just don't. But, but participate with God by embracing this truth. God sees me, and that's good. God sees me, and it's good. Strip yourself before nothing, because nothing's hidden from him. Nothing's hidden from God in the end. So think about this. Here's how we can put all of this together. Search yourself now with the word of God, so that you're able to strip yourself before the God of the word. Why? All so that you can effectively spend yourself. For salvation's rest. Do you need it again? Search yourself now with the word of God so that you are able to strip yourself before the God of the word. Why? All so that you can effectively spend yourself for salvation's rest. Okay, so we have three points from our passage in Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. And there's one more. Number four is from the greater context of Hebrews. And it's this. Number four. Soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you passionate to soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Hebrews 4, 11 through 13 is very sobering. It's a sobering warning. It's heavy. The writer's concerned that disobedience is gaining ground and the people are starting to coast and that history is repeating itself. It was a very serious time and it needed a serious warning. There's a sense of urgency in this command to be diligent to enter this great salvation rest that's in Christ. And I can't help but think that after hearing this, there may be some that um, conviction, you know, or maybe even discouragement right now, you know, maybe because you're not, maybe because you're not spinning yourself and you're not searching yourself with his word and you're not stripping yourself before the God of the word, you're not doing those things, but the writer of Hebrews and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit knew exactly what we needed to hear next and what does he write next? Let's look at verse 14. 
He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest. Ladies, we have a great high priest. And that high priest stands between us and God. And he's on our side. And he's on our Father's side. And he's interceding for us there. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's the one who back in chapter 1, verse 3, made purification of sins. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there's nothing more for him to do. It's done. It's done. He sits before God for us on our behalf. Preach this to yourself. Realities like that. That great one in chapter 2, verse 17, became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make what? Propitiation for the sins of his people? That's the gospel. What did the writer know we needed to hear after this? The gospel. Soak yourself in it. Soak yourself in the gospel. And you know, I can't assume, even in a room this size, I don't know all of you, but I can't assume that, that you all are my sisters. You know, I don't know your hearts. God knows. But regardless of where you are, soak yourself in the gospel. So that if, you know, your eyes haven't been opened to see your true need for a Savior, your true need for rest, they might be open to see his salvation, to see his atoning work. That your eyes might see that you do have a great need for a Savior. And then he would give you a new heart. The heart that only he can give to grant you forgiveness and true faith. And, and, and you can be, begin a whole new life with a new heart, a new passion. You know, to spend yourself, to search yourself, to strip yourself, and keep on soaking yourself in the gospel. So soak yourself in the promises of the gospel that still flow to us from the right hand of the majesty on high. He's sitting down, and they flow to you from there. And look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Are you weak? Are you feeling weak? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then look at what it says next. Therefore, what? Let us draw near with confidence. Remember, he sees everything we are. And that might be really discouraging or kind of scary. Yet what does it say next? You are weak and you are not diligent, so run and hide. That's not what he says. He says, no, draw near. Draw near with confidence. Don't run and hide. Don't run away and think that you have to beat yourself up to get your act together. No, and then you can then you can come to God. No, he says he says draw near to God now. Draw near to God. You're weak. Draw near with confidence to the throne of what? To the throne of what you deserve? No. You know, or to the throne of God who's waiting with a big stick to hit you over the head. No. To the throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us be diligent to soak ourselves in the grace of God. God's undeserved favor towards us. That's what grace is. We've got a mediator, a great high priest. Turn your eyes to him. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Soak yourself in Christ. 
Ladies, he knows. He knows we're weak in this. God knows that you're in need of mercy and that you don't pursue him diligently as we should. He knows we don't. He knows that we all need to find grace. He knows that we're in great need. And you know what? That's who his son is for you. He's the one who provides all of those things for you. And look at what he does. He has this throne of grace where he gives mercy. We're coasters, remember? We're coasters. And we're in a mixed condition with a residue of sin and we're weak. We need help. And he provides grace. And he's there for us. Draw near. Soak yourself in verses 14 through 16. Daily. Don't just stay on verses 11 and 13. No, soak yourself in these. Knowing that he's our great high priest and that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And that, and that we can draw near with confidence to his throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That does not motivate us to coast. It's our great motivator to keep going, to keep going, to run, to run by his grace and to know and draw near to our Savior, to the one you're running to and for. Soak yourself in chapter 7, verse 25. He says he's, he's able to save those forever who draw near through him. It doesn't say he's able to save those forever who keep, you know, going in their own strength. If you do that, you are going to grow weary. You're going to grow weary, and you're going to be discontent, and you're going to be ungrateful, and maybe even self-righteous. No. He says, since he always lives to make intercession for them, he says um, in verse 27 that um, it was fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those priests who offer up sacrifices for his own sin and then for the sins of the people because he did once and for all when he offered up himself. That's where our confidence is. He keeps his promises. Soak yourself there. Believers, we can have confidence in that. That's amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can have confidence in you and the finished work on the cross. Lord, I pray that each one of us would be diligent to entrust our life to these truths and as we meet in our discussion groups, Lord, that we would we would just um, apply what this passage is about this morning and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.